Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we approach your throne in honesty. Uh, The heights to which you call your church so often seem unrealistic. Who can do all of these things that we find in scripture? Who is bold enough, who is fearless enough, who is faithful enough to execute your will? When we look at our churches, we see um, just places filled with broken human beings, uh, flawed human beings. And the devil fills our heart with the lie that your words about us are false and impossible. But Father, we confess that you have chosen us to be witnesses of the good news for all people, that you've breathed your word, Jesus Christ, into our reality so as to reconcile all of creation back to yourself. So when we are cynical, when we are self-interested, when we are weak-minded, Father, we pray that you will continue breathing that word by the power of your Holy Spirit into our hearts so that we can be agents of your kingdom, which brings justice to the poor, food to the hungry, freedom to the enslaved, welcome to the stranger, and dignity to the widow. Amen. Well, it's good to be back. I know it's been a while, and and I'm sorry for that. Uh, One thing that I ask all of you is to please keep me in prayer uh, during this season of my life when I'm trying my best to be faithful to this church, to stay involved with the churches in, Austin, in Houston, to help spur some uh, reforms and get things going in the National CSI Church, uh, to be a good and faithful employee at my job during the special session, and to be planning my wedding in December. So it's, it's a lot of things, and by God's grace, I've been given energy so far, but just please continue to pray that all this movement all this movement will be sustainable and that God will raise leaders up in every area who's going to, who are going to continue to keep the movement for his kingdom going. So with all that said, we're still in the book of Acts, one of my favorite books of the Bible, because it's a story all about the early church of Jesus Christ. And it tells us in narrative form what the letters of Paul and Peter and John communicate by argument and rhetoric. It tells us who the church is and why it exists. And so, far, and so far, we have seen that the church is that community of people shaped by the gospel confession of Peter in Acts chapter 2. Do you guys remember that? That Jesus is Messiah and Lord. As Messiah, Jesus is the fulfillment of all the promises to Abraham and the nation of Israel, that through Abraham's descendants, God would bless all the nations of the earth, and that Israel would be the people through whom God would act to bring his justice and his healing to all the world. As Lord, Jesus is the true ruling authority over the, wor- over the world. The Son of Man prophesied about in Daniel chapter 7, who is himself God's ruling and authoritative word, the word of God that cuts down all rival powers, thrones, and dominions. Uh, when we say that, when we talk about the, the principalities and powers of the world, what we're talking about are the human empires that claim to run the world on their own authority and the dark spiritual powers that stand behind them. Jesus is the prophesied one, God himself, who came to establish the kingdom of God in opposition to those powers. But the crucial and surprising point is that Jesus establishes this kingdom of God not through the means that the people of Israel were expecting, which was conquest or sword as a new revolutionary David or Solomon. He establishes the kingdom of God by acting as a meek lamb led to the slaughter. 
He establishes the rule of God through the cross, a scandal to the Jews, foolishness to the Greeks, because the cross was the cursed mechanism that was the means by which the worst of society were executed. It's like saying the savior of the world was a terrorist who had been executed by the guillotine or by the electric chair. It's just a shocking claim. Though Jesus was utterly innocent, he took the blame for all of humankind's sin to unveil the great satanic lie behind all claims to power and authority in the world. That's what uh, the Gospels are about. That's what the book of Acts is about. And in his resurrection, God vindicates Jesus' life and elevates him to the place of glory, giving him the name that is above all other names, to declare to humankind, to all human beings, to all the world, that the way of the cross is the way of God's kingdom. This is what it means to be a true human being, to be one who is a follower of Christ, to be an imitation of Christ, one who suffers to love and forgive enemies as an expression of love to God and to neighbor. That's the way that we reconcile and renew the world, that God is reconciling and renewing the world through us. And we who confess Jesus as the risen Lord of the world are given his spirit, which transforms our hearts and our desires so that we can be the true image bearers, the royal priests that God had always created us to be. So Jesus did not reveal his resurrection to the entire world. I don't know if you've ever thought about that. After he uh, rose again, he didn't declare himself to all of the world. And why is that? Well, Leslie Newbegin has a really interesting hypothesis, which I think is true. Leslie Newbegin was a British missionary to India, and his thought is that the moment of Jesus' revelation, the revelation of his resurrection to the world, is the moment of judgment. In fact, that's what the word uh, apocalypse, which is often used uh, to refer to the end of the world in Paul's letters and in other letters, that's what the word apocalypse means. It means unveiling, revelation. At the end of time, when Christ is unveiled to all the world, that will be the moment of judgment where God's love will flood the world and all of creation will be renewed and this world will be united to heaven and all that rejects the love of God will pass away. So Jesus didn't reveal himself at the moment of revelation. Instead, he revealed himself only to a small group of disciples, people whom he had chosen and prepared to be vessels of his message of the kingdom to the world. In so doing, Jesus was opening up a gap between the resurrection and the final judgment. In the, again, referring to Leslie Newbegin, in, the, in his words, he was creating a space of grace for the world, a a period of time where his followers could go out throughout the world and bring his message of reconciliation to everyone because it's a message for everyone, regardless of color, caste, gender, whatever identity expression is popular nowadays. The, the love of God and the mercy of God is open to transform the world through Jesus Christ. And if you're not a Christian and you're hearing all this today, it probably sounds ridiculous. And it should sound ridiculous. We, I've pointed this out uh, time and time again, and I'm going to keep on pointing this out. We Christians are saying that a man who lived 2017 years ago is actually the crucified and resurrected Lord of the world, the Logos, the Word through whom all of creation was created, that a Jewish peasant killed as a revolutionary, as a traitor by Romans around 33 AD actually holds the entire universe in his hands like dust and that his judgment is coming upon the world at the end of time, but the good news is that his judgment is a judgment of love, of reconciling love. There are so many levels upon which that 
belief, that message, that construct sounds foolish, childish, and ridiculous. And yet we believe that this confession is the beautiful hope of the world, the only hope for the world. And the first five chapters of Acts show us narratively what it looks like for a, a group of people to believe that. The first group of disciples in the immediate days after Jesus' resurrection and ascension, what it looked like for them to believe that. They start off as a band of 120 disciples. They're given the Holy Spirit. They preach and teach in Jerusalem. They do these amazing signs of healing and restoration. They experience deep community and joy. That's what we've been reading about in the first five chapters of Acts. And despite opposition from the Jewish rulers, they grow and grow until they number at least over 5,000 people. But as they grow, the opposition also grows. You guys remember our last time we were here, we talked about Ananias and Sapphira lying about their offering to the church in Acts chapter 5. That's opposition from within. They're struck dead. And we talked about the strangeness of that story last time. And the apostles were thrown in jail. That's opposition from without, from outside. They're thrown in jail for preaching the Messiahship of Christ. But they're released by an angel so that they keep, can keep on preaching the gospel. And then they're brought before the council of elders. They're beaten, but they praise God because they've been judged worthy to suffer for the sake of Jesus' name. And that's what brings us to Acts chapter 6. So... Everything I was saying before was kind of a recap because we've been on a little bit of a break. Now let's get into the passage together. It's relatively short for uh, the book of Acts, only 15 verses. So starting with verse 1. Now during those days when the disciples were increasing in number, the Hellenists complained against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution of food. And the twelve called together the whole community of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should neglect the word of God in order to wait on tables. Therefore, friends, select from among yourselves seven men of good standing, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we may appoint to this task, while we, for our part, will devote ourselves to prayer and to serving the word. What they said pleased the whole community, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith in the Holy Spirit, together with Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. They had these men stand before the apostles who prayed and laid their hands on them. The word of God continued to spread, and the number of disciples increased greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Stephen, full of grace and power, did great wonders and signs among the people. Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, Cyrenians, Alexandrians, and others of those from Cilicia and Asia, stood up and argued with Stephen. But they could not understand the wisdom and the spirit with which he spoke. But they could not withstand, excuse me, the wisdom and the spirit with which he spoke. Then they secretly instigated some men to say, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. They stirred up the people as well as the elders and the scribes. Then they suddenly confronted him, seized him, and brought him before the council. They set up false witnesses who said, This man never stops saying things against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses handed on to us. And all who sat in the council looked intently at him, and they saw that his face was like the face of an angel." So, a lot of stuff going on here. If we continue our metaphor of Acts like a TV show, 
This would be the episode where it doesn't really seem like much is happening until we get to the part about Steven at the end. This is like one of those episodes of The West Wing. That's one of my favorite TV shows. The West Wing, sometimes they have bottle episodes, right, where nothing really happens that connects to the rest of the plot for the rest of the season until the very end. Because when, and so because of that, you're kind of tempted to think that the beginning part of that episode doesn't really matter. But actually, this chapter is not like that. The, the early part is actually pretty significant, and we're going to spend quite a bit of time today on it. Because what we find happening here in the beginning part of the chapter, uh, even though it seems so ordinary, complaints. There's complaints about church administration. Some of our widows are being left out of the distribution of food. But actually, this chapter has a lot to teach us about the essence of leadership in the church. And that's all going to come together as we get into the story of Stephen. So let's get into it with verse 1. Verse 1. Now, during those days when the disciples were increasing in number, the Hellenists complained against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution of food. So what's going on here? Uh, We have some information from this first verse that sets some context, right? The church is continuing to grow. The disciples were increasing in number. And the Hellenists, whoever they are, are complaining against the Hebrews, whoever they are, because their widows aren't getting the fair share of the food in the daily distribution. So who are the Hellenists and who are the Hebrews here? Well, it's it's a little bit of history, but I I think it's worth uh, taking the time to explain this so that you have a, a better context to understand what's going on here in the early church. Remember, at the beginning of Acts, Jews from all over the world were coming to visit Jerusalem for the Feast of Pentecost. This is the feast where the Jews celebrated Moses receiving the Ten Commandments from God. And you have to remember your Bible. The Jews were the remnant of Israel that was conquered by Babylon in the Old Testament. Do you remember that? This is a significant, frustrating, but central, crucial experience of the Jewish people. Because the story of Israel is the story of a people freed from slavery in Egypt and led by the Spirit of God into the wilderness, into the Promised Land, so that they could worship God and obey His commandments. Because by being the people of God, they would fulfill God's promise to Abraham to bless the world. That was the self-conception of Israel. So it was a humiliation that the remnant of Israel, the Jews, were conquered by the Babylonians. Their temple is totally destroyed, and they're led right back into slavery, away from their homeland, away from their temple where they could worship God. And much of the rest of the Old Testament, after the moment of the Babylonian conquest, is about the Jews wrestling with God about what all this means. Has God abandoned us? Will God ever return? Will we ever return to our homeland? What's going to happen to God's promise to bless the world through the descendants of Abraham? And we read in the Old Testament that after uh, the Jews are brought to Babylon, Babylon is conquered by the Persians, and there rises up a Persian king who allows for a small number of Jews, not all of them, to return to Jerusalem to rebuild the kingdom. But since not all of them came, a lot of Jews remained scattered throughout now the first the Babylonian Babylonian Empire, now the Persian Empire. And then Persia is conquered by Greece under Alexander the Great. You guys have probably heard about him in history. The Greeks come and defeat the Persians, and the Jews are scattered throughout Alexander's empire, which is called the Hellenistic Empire. It was a fusion of Persian, Babylonian, Arabic, uh, Arab, sorry, Egyptian, and Greek cultures. That's the Hellenistic Empire. 
And if you know your history, that empire in turn is eventually conquered by Rome. And that's where we are when we come to Jesus' time and the time of the early church. Rome rules most of the civilized known world, and the Jews are scattered everywhere from Egypt to Cilicia to Jerusalem to Turkey to Greece and even to Rome itself. But because the Jewish temple is the central place of Jewish worship, many Jews return to Jerusalem for the major Jewish holidays. And that's what happens in Acts chapter 2. All of these Jews from all these different places are coming for the Feast of Pentecost, the celebration of Moses receiving the law, and that's when the Spirit is poured out upon the disciples, and the disciples preach, and all kinds of people are converted. Uh, They're all Jews, but they're culturally very different, because remember, it's been hundreds of years since these Jews have been separated, so they all speak different languages and have very different cultures. A Roman Jew is very different from an Egyptian Jew, is very different from a Hebrew Jew who lives in Jerusalem. We can see this, I think, in our own churches, right? Our own church experiences in the Indian church. The characteristics of Indians born here are very different from those who immigrated in the 1970s or 1980s. And what we're going to see throughout the book of Acts is that the gospel, the claim that Jesus is the crucified and risen Messiah of the world, starts breaking down all kinds of barriers, including barriers of gender and barriers of race. So the gospel is not limited just to the Jews. This is a shock to many people in Jerusalem when it comes, and we're going to talk about that when it comes to Peter, when it comes to Paul, and we start seeing the gospel break down racial and ethnic barriers because actual Greeks are going to be converted, actual Romans, actual Arabs, actual Syrians. They're going to be included within the family of God, and then the Jews have to wrestle, what does this mean? Does this mean we're not special anymore? What does this mean that all of us are the people of God? But we're not even there yet. What we see is that God is doing this progressively, slowly, gradually. First, he's breaking down the barriers within the Jewish community itself because the Jews are culturally all different from one another. That's what we're seeing here. There are some Jews who are Hellenists. That means they are primarily Greek-speaking. They come from outside Judea. And there are some Jews who are known as Hebrews. That means they're from within Judea, near Jerusalem, and they are not from outside. They're culturally distinct from one another. And the confession that Jesus is Lord starts to break those barriers down. So, I mean, uh, this is this is like conflict between Malayalis from Kerala and Malayalis from America. I'm hoping I'm making sense with what I'm talking about here. Do you guys get that? Okay, cool. And so when the apostles begin converting people, they're not just converting the Hebrew Jews, right? They're also converting Jews from other parts of the Roman Empire, those uh, who are from different parts of the world, very far away. And it's an amazing thing when they are converted and they join the church in Jerusalem. It's growing by the thousands. But a lot of times that means that they're abandoning their old lives in Antioch or Babylon or Alexandria or Athens, and they're staying in Jerusalem. And it's an amazing thing, and it's only possible because all the disciples are sharing everything they have. Remember the story of Barnabas, I think, in Acts chapter 4? He sells his field so that he could provide for all these people who are now staying in Jerusalem. The church is caring for one another. That's the only way this is possible at this point. But with continued growth, there is more and more conflict. And it looks like intentionally or probably unintentional, unintentionally, the Greek-speaking widows, the Hellenistic widows, uh, the ones who don't have husbands or who have been abandoned by their husbands, 
they're not getting their fair share of the food. They're not being provided for. Uh, and it seems to just be going to the widows who are Hebrew Jews, the ones who speak Hebrew or Aramaic and grew up near Jerusalem. Now, this, I, I don't think, uh, and I've read a few different commentaries here, I don't think this is intentional. What is happening is that the leadership of the church originally consists of those who grew up in Judea, and they likely only spoke Hebrew or Aramaic. So when those people are giving out uh, the proceeds, they probably organically just know of other people, of the problems of other people who speak their language. Because of cultural and language barriers, they probably didn't have as many relationships, organic relationships with the Greek-speaking widows and didn't know about their problems as much. But eventually the complaint rises up and reaches the 12 apostles, the leaders of the church, and they have to deal with this problem in their community. And their reaction in verse 2 is very interesting. So let's look at verse 2 now. And the 12 called together the whole community of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should neglect the word of God in order to wait on tables. Now, this could be uh, misinterpreted as a very harsh response. It could be read as if the 12 apostles are saying they're too busy with spiritual matters to be concerned about these less important physical needs. Like there's a, uh, there's a distinction between the spiritual and the material. And I don't think that's what's going on here. There's a genuine need here for food for the poor, and someone has to resolve it. So are the apostles really saying this is not that important and they shouldn't spend their time solving it? I don't think that's what's being conveyed here. I think actually, if we look into this, there's a lot of wisdom for us as a church in this verse. And that's the absolute priority of prayer and the word of God as at the heart of the church. Because if that is lost, if the word of God and prayer is lost, then everything else in the church is lost. See, sometimes there's a temptation when there are genuine needs in your community to focus all your attention on addressing those various needs. But especially for spiritual leaders, they ought to guard their time so that prayer and the word of God is the first priority. Communion with God, knowledge of his will, study of his word, relationship with God, that has to be first. If the apostles started paying more attention to the business affairs or arranging food or making sure there was a good fellowship time with sports tournaments for the kids and charity auctions happening at church to the point where they are neglecting the study, teaching, and preaching of Jesus Christ, then everything else they would be doing would be useless. There's always a temptation for our focus in church to shift so that we entirely miss the point. We need a new building. We need to welcome newcomers and strangers. We need to provide more mental health counseling in our community. We need sports programs for our kids. We need to visit and love the elderly. We need to take care of the poor amongst us. And I'm not dismissing any of that. All of those are real, genuine needs. But if we do not even understand the word of God, if we neglect sharing a vision of the gospel, of preaching Christ on the cross, of witnessing the kingdom, if that is not understood as at the absolute center of our identity and our efforts, then all the rest of it is in vain. And that's what the apostles are saying. They are guarding their time because prayer and the word of God are at the heart of the, apostle, of the apostolic teaching. And the apostolic teaching that God is acting in Christ to reconcile the world to himself is at the heart of the church. Without that gospel conviction, we cease to be the church. We just become another organization that holds a few programs throughout the year. But notice, even while they are maintaining the absolute priority of prayer and the word of God, they are not neglecting the need. They are empowering the church 
to meet the need. And that's what we read in verses 3 to 6. They are equipping the church to meet the need. Therefore, friends, verse 3, Therefore, friends, select from among yourselves seven men of good standing, full of the Spirit and of wisdom, whom we may appoint to this task, while we, for our part, will devote ourselves to prayer and to serving the word. What they said pleased the community, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith in the Holy Spirit, together with Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. They had these men stand before the apostles who prayed and laid their hands on them. So this is the second point. The Spirit works through the church to raise up leaders to meet needs. We have to have absolute confidence on that point. Within our own church, we have enough people with enough neat gifts to meet all the needs that arise. One of the interesting things to notice in the New Testament is the different methods of selection for leaders. For the first 12 uh, d- disciples, Jesus calls them directly, right? The apostle Matthias replaces the apostle Judas, who killed himself. The apostle Matthias is chosen by picking through lots. That's what we read in Acts chapter 1. Jesus appears to Paul in a vision, and we're going to read about that in the coming weeks. That's how Paul is set apart and chosen. Paul appoints and commissions Timothy as elder of the church in Ephesus, and Titus as elder of the church in Crete. We read about that in the letters of Timothy, 1st and 2nd Timothy and Titus. And here we read that seven, the seven leaders are chosen by the people and then confirmed by the apostles with their prayers and blessing, with their laying on of hands. So we see a lot of different patterns, actually, for how leaders are chosen. But no matter the method of selection, one constant is the criteria for selection as a leader in the church. And that we continue to see here. And that criteria is trust. So first of all, look at the instructions the apostles give in verse 3. Therefore, friends, select from among yourselves seven men of good standing, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we may appoint to this task. So the people who are going to be chosen have to be of good standing, and they have to be full of the spirit and wisdom. Why is that important? Because the currency of Christian leadership in the church is trust. Uh, this, this is a change from the way church leadership uh, operated in the, uh, in the Old Testament. Sorry, not church leadership, spiritual leadership, leadership that is given from God. This is a change. The way leadership operates in the church is very different from how it operates in the Old Testament. Uh, remember, in the Old Testament, the model is the man of God went up the mountain of God to get the word of God and then come down and tell the people of God what to do. That's Moses at Mount Sinai. The man of God going up the mountain of God gets the word of God, comes down and tells the people of God what to do. But in the New Testament, that separation no longer applies. And we have to be very clear about that. All of us are a kingdom of priests together. All of us have access to God through the cross of Christ. All of us have the spirit of God living within us. And remember, a kingdom of priests was what God always wanted. In Exodus, God actually wanted all of Israel to be there in the midst of his presence, but the Israelites were afraid of God, and they begged for Moses to go to talk to God for them. This inclination to have someone else in charge surfaces generations later when they plead with God, give us a king. God wanted to be their king, to have each of them follow him, to have loyalty to him, but they refused. They wanted to have one person stand in the gap between themselves and God. 
But the New Testament shows us something very different when it comes to appointing leaders because that gap has been torn away by the cross of Christ. Now God lives within our hearts. We are the temple. And so if that's the case, how do leaders come from within us? All of us have access to God, right? It's not that some people have the Spirit and other people don't have the Spirit. All of us as the church are given the Spirit. So the method of the, the qualifications are shown to us in different ways. In, in Acts chapter 6, they're shown in story form. 1 Timothy chapter 3 shows us more straightforwardly. Paul lists out the qualifications for elders and deacons in the church, leaders in the church. And here's just one line. A deacon must be the husband of but one wife and must manage his children and household well. Well, follow me for a minute here. Who is the best and greatest king of Israel in the Old Testament? And I think everyone's mind is going to David. No, every other king in the Bible is measured against David. Because of God's love for David, God did not punish Solomon for his sins during his own lifetime. That's how much God loved David. Even the best of the kings of Judah, when you read First and Second Kings, they're always described as lacking compared to David. He was the greatest. But notice this. The qualifications I just read, a deacon must be the husband of but one wife and must manage his children and household well. David would not meet those qualifications for deaconship. Deacons were the lowest level of leaders in the New Testament church. They're the ones who, like in Acts chapter 6, waited on tables to distribute food for the care of the orphans. So David would not even meet the qualifications for waiting on tables in the New Testament church. The greatest leader in the Old Testament would not have qualified for the lowest position of leadership in the New Testament. Why? Because there's a change. In the, in the Old Testament, leaders got their authority to rule from divine favor. God just chooses certain people to execute certain tasks and he puts his favor upon them. And sometimes they sin, but he brings them back in order to uh, finalize his will. But in the New Testament, people get their authority to lead from earned trust because God's favor is poured out upon all of the church. So every one of the qualifications in 1 Timothy 3 and even in Acts chapter 6, when they choose the first seven deacons, has to do with trust. What kind of reputation do they have? Are they known for, servant, for servanthood? Are they known for being people of wisdom? Are they known for pe being people filled with the Spirit of God? Have they been tested? Do they have the abilities necessary? It's not like the Old Testament. It's not whether they've been prophesied over as children or if they have a calling on their lives or if they believe they're called to be a prophet to the nations or even if they're anointed. Paul is asking uh, in his letters, and Luke is showing in Acts chapter 6, the, the central question is what sort of reputation do these uh, potential leaders have? In essence, can they be trusted? These are the sorts of questions we need now to ask when we select leaders. Secondly, look at the names of those selected to be in charge of the distribution of food. Uh, so the verse says, what they said pleased the whole community, and they chose Stephen, they chose Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas. All of those names, all seven of those names, it's significant that all of them are Greek names. These leaders were trusted to be impartial, but they all came from the Hellenistic culture, not from the Hebrew culture. And notice what that means. The Hebrew Jews consented to having all the deacons in charge of the distribution of food be not Hebrew but Hellenistic as a sacrificial gesture of trust 
to the Hellenistic community that they would be fully included in the life of the church. That's the way leadership and affirmation of leadership in the Christian church operates. We have to trust one another, and we have to sacrifice sometimes in order to make that point. So this brings us to the third point. The point of all this leadership is what we read in the rest of the chapter, in verses 7 to 15. So I'm, I'm going to read that for us again. The word of God continued to spread. The number of, of disciples increased greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Stephen, full of grace and power, did great wonders and signs among the people. Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, Cyrenians, Alexandrians, and those from Cilicia and Asia, stood up and argued with Stephen. But they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he spoke. Then they secretly instigated some men to say, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. They stirred up the people as well as the elders and the scribes. Then they suddenly confronted him, seized him, and brought him before the council. They set up false witnesses who said, This man never stops saying things against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses handed on to us. And all who sat in the council looked intently at Stephen, and they saw that his face was like the face of an angel. The first point we should notice is verse 7. As a result of these actions, the church continues to grow to where now even some of the Jewish priests were becoming Christians. And that's significant because we talked about this a little more uh, a, a few weeks ago, but the priests were the educated class. Many of the first disciples were from the lowest class. They were uneducated fishermen. And so this is just more evidence of how the church centered around the prayer and the word of God with servant leaders trusted by all rising up to meet needs is continuing to break down more and more barriers. Now class barriers, education barriers. But we also see the results of this leadership in the example of Stephen. And we're going to talk a lot more about that next week when we go over Acts chapter 7. As a preview, many of you know that Stephen was the first martyr of the church, the first person to die for his faith in Jesus, so you know that that's, that's coming, and we're going to talk about that story next week, which starts really here at the, at the end of Acts chapter 6. But what I want to point out is that the result of a church centered around the word of God in prayer with trusted servant leaders who rise up to meet needs is the touching of heaven upon earth inside the Christian person. The, Christian, the face of the Christian person becomes the face of heaven. And you say, Brian, where are you getting that from this passage? Well, Stephen has basically been ordained and set apart as one of the deacons of the church. But notice, he's not just waiting on tables distributing food to the widows. The grace of God is on him, and he's empowered and filled with the Spirit to do all these signs and wonders testifying to the Lordship of Jesus. And he's going around to all these different synagogues near Jerusalem, and it seems that there are pop these are synagogues populated from people who have moved from Jerusalem from outside, from other parts of the empire, places like Asia or Cilicia or Alexandria. And he's talking to them, and, he, and he's probably someone who is empowered to talk to them because he, he's Hellenistic in culture. He can speak their language. And notice what he's accused of saying, that Jesus will destroy the temple and abolish the laws of Moses. Now, we're going to get all into that next week, but here's just a taste of uh, what we're going to talk about. The result of right leadership in the church is going to be something like the face of Stephen. In the face of opposition, the rulers and accusers look at Stephen, and they see the face of an angel. That's the last verse, verse 15. What does this mean? Why is Luke pointing this out? 
What has happened is that Stephen himself was illumined with the light of Christ in the same way that a moon reflects the light of the sun. What is happening to Stephen, if you look at those verses closely, it's exactly what happened to Jesus. False accusations, controversies, arguments, the search for a scapegoat in the midst of power politics. And Stephen is now standing as the Jewish temple claimed to stand and as Jesus truly stood at the overlap between heaven and earth. Jesus Christ as God upon earth, as God taking flesh, is the true temple. And Stephen is now united to Christ. He is participating in the templeness of Jesus Christ. And so in that way, he is a physical, personal demonstration of the temple, the place where God's spirit dwells. That's why his face is shining like the face of an angel. And that's the entire point of leadership in the church, of the, prior, of the priority of the study of the word of God in prayer, of servant leaders being empowered who are trusted by the people. That's the entire point of the book of Acts. Through the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus Christ, we have been launched into a new phase of world history where those of us who are united to Jesus, like Stephen, become the true temple where God's spirit really dwells, the new human beings, the restored image bearers whom God had always been purposing for since the time of Adam and Eve. The book of Acts is all about showing what a community of that new humankind united in Jesus Christ looks like. It's a new humankind with radically different ethics, cross-shaped ethics, cross-shaped values, willing to suffer and die for truth because we fully believe that through the resurrection, death and sin and the devil have been defeated and so we have nothing to fear. But in the face of death, praying for forgiveness out of true love for enemies. That's what the Spirit of God is transforming us into, and that's what we're going to continue into next week. But until we get there, let's all stand and rise together and confess the Apostles' Creed, the Apostles' Creed, which is the historic statement of faith of what all Christians, even from the very beginning, even the church of Stephen, believed in. Let's all rise and say that together.